Would you open God's precious holy word to Leviticus chapter 21, chapters 21 and 22 are rules for priests. We'll look at 21. I'm going to treat this, this chapter like I have several. We'll go right through the narrative and then at the end of it, I'll make some observations regarding the importance of the instructions and how they can apply to us today. Rules for the priesthood, first of all, marriage rites and burial rites. Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, let none of you defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relative who is close to him, his mother, his father, son, daughter, brother, and for his virgin sister who is close to him and who was not yet with a man for her and he, sh- he shall other than he shall defile himself. So except for his close relatives, he's not to touch dead people as a priest because verse one, he would defile himself. A husband shall not defile himself for a wife who causes his desecration while she is among his people. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shall they shave the edge of their beard, nor shall they make cuts in their flesh. They're not to make any kind of outward show of grief or whatever. They shall be holy to their God, and they shall not desecrate their God's name. For they offer up the fire offerings of Yahweh. This is the priesthood. That's very special privilege. The food offering of their God. So they shall be holy. They shall not marry a woman who is a prostitute or who's desecrated. They shall not marry a woman who is divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers up the food offering of his God, of your God. And he shall be holy to you, for I, Yahweh, who sanctifies you, am holy. I sanctify you. I declare that you are holy because I'm holy. Therefore, there are rules to follow. Now, One brief verse about daughters of priests who become prostitutes. If a priest's daughter becomes desecrated through adultery, she desecrates her father. She should be burned in fire. Pretty severe penalty. Continues to describe the importance of the sanctity of the priesthood. These who are special kind of leaders among God's people. Now here are the standards for the high priest and the priest who is elevated above his brothers, that is the high priest, upon whose head the anointment oil has been poured, the high priest, or who has been inaugurated to wear the garments, he shall not leave his hair unshorn or rend his garments. He shall not come upon any dead bodies. He shall not defile himself for his father or his mother. So he he has a higher standard than just the regular priesthood. He shall not leave the sanctuary and he will not desecrate the holy things of his God for the crown of the anointing oil of your God is upon him. I am Yahweh or his God. I am Yahweh. He shall marry a woman in her virgin state, a widow, a divorcee, a woman who is desecrated or a prostitute. He shall not marry any of these. Only a virgin of his people may he take as a wife. And he shall not desecrate his offspring among his people, for I am Yahweh who sanctifies him. 
Now there are things that would disqualify a Levite, a son of Aaron, from the priesthood. And those disqualifications are given here in, in the, this closing portion. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, any man among your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall not come near to offer up the food of his God. For any man who has a defect should not approach. A blind man, a lame one, one with a sunken nose or mismatching limbs, or a man who has a broken leg or a broken arm, or one with long eyebrows or a cataract, or a commingling in his eye, dry lesions or weeping sores, or one with crushed testicles. I've always wanted to read that verse out loud, I guess. Any man among Aaron, uh, any man among Aaron, the priest's offspring who has a defect, shall not draw near to offer up Yahweh's fire offerings. There is a defect in him. He shall not draw near to offer up the food of his God. And the food of his God for the most holy and from the holy ones he may eat. He still has, a, he still has something he's able to do. But he shall not come to the dividing curtain, nor shall he draw near to the altar, for he has a defect, and he shall not desecrate my holy things, for I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. Moses told this to Aaron and his sons and all of the sons of Israel. So let's talk about the priesthood, a separate and higher standard for the spiritual leaders of God's people. In the Old Testament, I have I have several things here that I'll I'll point out, and I have them written down on these slides. Keep in mind that it was Israel's call to be a holy people. Now, if they're to fulfill their calling, they're to be holy and separate. You know, we've gone through all these chapters in Leviticus and we've talked about the clothes that they wear and the houses they live in, the food they can eat, the food they can't eat. Um, if something's wrong in their clothing, you know, like I think the, it was translated like leprosy of the clothes or leprosy of the house, whatever. All of those things are highly important and what they eat and uh, what they do, the, the practices of the cultures that they left, the culture they left in Egypt and the culture that they're headed to in Canaan. God made it very clear, by your diet, by the way you, by the way your appearance, by the appearance of your clothing, the appearance of your homes, by the rules that you're given, you're going to show the world that you are my holy people. You're separate from everybody else. You're not like everybody else. You're not like the Egyptians from whence you came and you're not like the Canaanites where you're going. So you are a holy people. Now, if they fulfill this, then it was essential that they were led by spiritual leaders who were committed to the pursuit of holiness. Now, you go, you go way back in this thing. This, you're, it's hard to remember with, with, with the interruption of COVID and all those things, but this, this Leviticus study that we're in follows the study of Exodus and all of these are closely related. There are a few more details. The, the, the general summation was given and uh, in, in, to a degree in Exodus, but there are details that are given in Leviticus that are very important uh, with regard to God's people. 
all the way from the time they left Egypt, God did what, exactly what he had to do to physically separate them from the world in which they lived. You remember there was a pillar of fire. There was the Red Sea that was parted and, and then it was put back. It fell back upon itself and the Egyptians died in all of that. There was, um, there, then, then there was the event of the golden calf where the people were punished. There, of course, was Moses being called up uh, to the mountain where he would receive the law. And this law, these instructions are, are distinct for the people of God, the nation of Israel. They're different. They have to live differently. They have to look differently. They're expected to be obedient because God has invested himself. His, uh, the, 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 the presence of God uh, is known to exist inside the Holy of Holies at the tabernacle. And when they moved, and they're still in this state of moving here uh, in Le when Leviticus is given. So when, when the whole nation begins to move in its march toward Canaan, the tabernacle and the priests were in the middle. Way on back there, I hope you recall, the Levites were designated for the priesthood and the sons of Aaron would serve as high priest in a tenure uh, when the time came. So if God's people are holy and separated to God, their spiritual leaders are expected to have a special pursuit of holiness. Here's why. We read it. It was their hands that handled the sacrifice. They were responsible for keeping the fire going, the fire that God himself had made uh, to, to teach the people what they were doing when they brought a sacrifice. And those five offerings that we studied right at the beginning of Leviticus, and each of those offerings had a specific meaning and had specific instructions. And so there was meaning to it. Uh, there, was, there were spiritual lessons for the people to learn. And the priests were separated specifically to that task. The priests were like the daysmen. They were like the intermediary uh, in a worship sense between the worshiper and between Yahweh, the God who is being worshiped. With this very, very special privilege of being a spiritual leader, for example, when they got to Canaan, they didn't have a land separated for them as a tribe because they had to serve the people all across the land. Therefore, they had certain cities and they were provided for in certain ways, but there was not a portion of land that belonged to them. Their work, their job, their calling was the calling of leading in worship and being a spiritual leader for the people of God. Now, we, we, let's bring that to the New Testament. It has been said that a church cannot grow spiritually beyond its leaders. Well, I'll tell you this, God can do whatever he wants to do, but it is true that leaders are important. Spiritual leaders are important. They set a tone and, and, and they exercise an enormous influence on the spiritual vitality of their people. 
So these leaders of God's people, the spiritual leaders, occupy a very strategic role and a special role. And it's always wise that careful consideration is given to the qualifications so that they should be expected to have, uh, that they're expected to have before they are admitted to leadership and to the standards that they should be expected to reach once they're in that role. We don't have this kind, these kinds of standards precisely in the New Testament with regard to elders, bishops, deacons. But when you read them, in a sense, they're very close. The, 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 the requirements for the spiritual leaders are very close. There is a, there's an expectation uh, there is a role, there is a responsibility placed on those whom God would raise to spiritual leadership and requirements that you don't see placed outside that particular, uh, that particular role of, of spiritual leadership. That's not to say that somebody is more pure or more, is cleaner or whatever. It's just to say that spiritual leaders have a role of leadership and people are always watching and always expecting their spiritual leaders to exercise this special spiritual influence in their lives. And the Lord recognizes that, of course. So we have something of, we have something of, the, of, of the same thing with regard to the uh, requirements for spiritual leaders in the New Testament. But uh, they're very, very, uh, very meticulous here uh, in the Old Testament. Now, the chapters of Leviticus 21 and 22 cover issues with regard to the personal lives of the priesthood, their physical makeup before introducing a code of professional conduct. A spiritual leader, the priest here, a pastor in the New Testament, some other kind of ordained leadership, it is naturally assumed, it's not just assumed as a fact, that these people live in sort of a glass house. They're, they're being watched. But you also know that God gives grace and strength and wisdom in a special way because the position, no, the, the privilege of playing the role or, or being put in the role of spiritual leadership carries a whole lot with it. I was thinking there are certain pastors today. It's, all, it's really always been this way. It's always been this way. But you can see where these guys that have a, a presence all the time. They, they have a huge church. They write a lot of books and all this kind of thing. One little thing. One little thing is uncovered in their lives and it's just splattered all over the place, right? They carry this, 
they, they carry this uh, stigma, this, ma- uh, this magnetic, they, they are, people are magnetically drawn to examine and watch carefully the lives of these people. Now, sometimes, especially in today's media world, things can be presented in a language that would cause people to misconstrue what really is the fact of, of the spiritual leader's life. But that, that doesn't matter. They're always on the attack and anybody in any spiritual leadership has to be aware of this. I'll give you an example. I forget the year, the, it was in the 90s when W.A. Criswell came to preach for us at First Baptist Sachs. A new generation may not know who that guy was, but he had just retired and in his, in his pastorate of 44 years at First Baptist Dallas, First Baptist Dallas, Texas had grown during his time to be the largest Protestant congregation in the world. Now, it wasn't exactly that way, I don't think, when he retired. He was already in his 80s. And Dr. Criswell always liked to dress in a solid white suit, white shoes. And he, he had white hair, thick white hair. And he was a Southern gentleman and as gracious of a person as you could ever meet. And we were privileged to be able to have him to come to the church where I was pastor at that time. And it was a, it was a large church, big, big, big sanctuary. I can't remember, it might have been at that time the biggest sanctuary in the county, I can't remember, but it, there were 1,500 seat, I don't know what the, it was just, but it was packed full. People were standing. You had to park a block away to get to the, just huge crowd to come and hear Dr. Crispell speak. It was also back in those days when Dr. Crispell had taken a leadership in defending the inerrancy of the scriptures in the Southern Baptist Convention. Dr. Crispell was my guest and a reporter from the Anniston Star. We always used to call it the Red Star. The Anniston Star asked if they could sit down for a brief interview before he went out to preach. And uh, this particular church had 120 in the choir maybe, maybe more. I don't know, a big, huge choir, orchestra and all this. So Dr. Chris was so gracious. I asked him, I said, do you want to speak to this? Of course. He called me, precious boy. Yes, precious boy. Let them come in. So I brought them into my office. Dr. Chris was behind my desk and they interviewed him. Just kind of standard questions. And uh, he was so gracious. He thanked them for the privilege of, of, of being thought of like that, to be thought of important enough to, to have a, 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 a local reporter to come. A just very gracious man. He went out into this packed, big sanctuary 
as he went out, it was his practice to graciously thank whoever he saw for coming that night. And this was before he was seated and before the service started. And so the choir was in place. Well, it just so happened that the place where I brought him in, the closest section was the alto section, I think, where I brought him in. And he thanked, he shook their hands and thanked them and just went on and had a seat up there on the stage. And, and then we got to the time after the, the music, he got to the time where he preached. I had to carry him back to his hotel. He was actually, he was actually there to, to speak at Sanford in Birmingham, but we were able to get him one night. I took him back. And I want to say it right. The big, the big headline was how, how the, the splendid Dr. Criswell wooed the women of the choir as he walked in to have, like he was chasing women or something. And of course, good heavens, <laughs> this man, there was nothing I called to complain. I, nobody would let me talk to anybody. I don't know. But the point is, spiritual leaders have to be constantly aware of the world and its wiles. Dr. Chris, I never shared that with him. Um, he would have probably just said, well, precious boy, just pray for them. You know, that's probably what he had said. I was younger and more full of spit and fire then than I am now. I kind of wanted to kick somebody's teeth in, but I couldn't get them. I didn't know who to go to. I've mellowed since then. But the point being, this past week, I read something about a, a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention He's resigned his position in a particular place, particular area. And I happen to know something of the situation and how it was written up is nothing of how it actually went down. Okay? So there is a standard and even that standard has to be higher than a standard that you would think. This is the way it was with the priests that's why he says, be careful who you marry. Watch your children. Don't let your daughters do, the, they, they'll defile you. People will hold you responsible and it is your hands that handle the sacrifices. You are the one who is standing between Yahweh and the worshiper. You have a, an extraordinarily important job to do. So you can't, you have to have a standard that everyone understands that's above any other standard that I would place on the rest of Israel because of your visibility and this special place that you have, the privilege of being a, a, a priest. Now, of course, high standards of holiness were expected of all of Israelites. Higher standards for the priests and even higher standard for the high priest. Walter Kaiser, he's dead now, but he wrote a book. He said, there is a principle to be observed here. The principle is the abiding one that special privilege and honor place those 
on whom they are conferred under special obligations to a higher level of holiness of life. It's just a fact of life. That's the way it is. In the words of Jesus, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. James writes something similar to leaders in the New Testament church when he says, you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Still more significant is the phrase that occurs more than once. I have it down there where it all occurs, uh, even, even in later chapters. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I'm holy. And I am the one who makes you holy. So Yahweh himself makes them holy as, his, as he places upon them with the call his transforming power that works in their lives. Affirming the good, convicting them of wrong, and cleansing out the bad. Holiness is not achieved in the lives of spiritual leaders on their own. They have to have the added grace and strength that God gives. God's role in sanctifying his spiritual leaders, of course, works in partnership with, with the obedience and commitment from within the life of the leader. The first reference to the phrase occurs in chapter 20. We've already passed that. And the last time in chapter 22, it's, these are like bookend references that show that the process of holiness is advanced as the people keep the decrees God has given. This, for example, when they first came out of Egypt, it was not the time for God to give them these instructions of sanctification and holiness. They just weren't ready for that yet. But then after a time of being separated as God's people and having the direct intervention of God and protection of God, after a time, more is given to them. And that's what's happening here in Leviticus with regard to the priesthood. More instructions uh, are, are given to the people and to the priesthood. There can be, of course, no holiness apart from obedience. God doesn't confer holiness, that is, the obedience to adhere to these restrictions and instructions, irrespective of their own desire to walk in these ways. Now, here's, here's how that translates. My daddy used to say it this way. When God makes a bill, he pays it. In the New Testament church, you know, God, God gives, as I said earlier, this added grace. He confers upon his own um, special blessings. He gives to us as Christians, as the church. He gives to us the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the Holy Spirit gives us strength and direction and guidance and, and conviction when conviction is necessary. Now, then... When, let's take, for example, when, 
when Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus, he, he came under this direct call of Christ. To be whipped and shipwrecked and all those other things, that wasn't the first thing required of him. It didn't start like that. It started in another way. He spent three years in the Arabian desert where he, where he was personally taught by the Holy Spirit. He was already a master of Old Testament scriptures, being a graduate of the school, school of Galileo. And he was a hero to Judaizers, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And then when Christ arrested him and placed him in the apostolic service, evangelizing and being a missionary to the Gentiles, when Christ did all of this, he was developed inwardly first. And then, of course, when you read the epistles of Paul and the, the, the Jewish leaders with whom he would debate that he references um, in, in some of his letters, you can know that this spirit-filled man who gave us most of the, of, of the New Testament knew exactly where Christ was in every Old Testament passage. And he, of course, presents this in some of his epistles as he reflects upon the debates and arguments that he had, even to the point of being left for dead, stoned and, and left for dead, uh, whipped, um, beaten, thrown in jail, shipwrecked, all those bad things that happened to, to him didn't happen until after he was strengthened then to understand his call and begin his call. And as he walks across much of Europe in carrying the gospel, by the time those bad things happened to him, he had already been strengthened. My point is this. God grows us into the position where he puts us. We bloom where we are planted because God has pre prepared the soil and shines the sunlight and sends the rain so that the effect of, of growth and blossoming into what God would have us to be will happen because of what God has provided. Now, in the case of the, Leviticus priest, the Levitical priesthood, they had already been separated as, as the Levites. They were already separated as the priesthood of God. And they experienced what Sinai looked like when Moses received the law. They saw personally what God did in their behalf. So they knew that if God separated them to a work and gave to them the instructions that he would make the path for them to walk so that these instructions could be followed. Now, if you study the, especially in the book of Judges, if you study, you will find that the priesthood, certain of the priests could fall into grievous sin, especially in the book of Ezekiel toward the end of uh, 
the southern kingdom of Judah, they had forsaken what God had instructed them to do and they had become worshipers of, of false gods such that they engraved the images of their, those gods on the tunnels underneath the temple. And they were just a bad lot. What happened to them? They forsook the instructions of Yahweh. And when the priesthood, as a matter of fact, in the demise of the northern kingdom, the priesthood was so bad that Yahweh wrote through Hosea, like people, like priest. In other words, the priesthood, you couldn't tell any difference between the priesthood and everybody else. And they were all, they were all involved in grievous sin and, and the collapse of the culture around them. And if you study Hosea closely, you'll see that it was because they had forsaken the word of God, the law of God. That's why we know that you can't separate this sanctification from the desire to be obedient. And how can you be obedient if you don't know what you're supposed to obey? This was incumbent upon the Levites, especially because as we've discussed earlier, every time an offering is brought, a meal offering, a sin offering, a peace offering, whatever, whichever kind that was brought, each one had a specific meaning and it had a special lesson for the word and the worshiper would reveal his desire to learn this lesson because he comes in confessing sin and brings the offering or he comes expressing a desire to be a totally committed servant of God in, in, in the burnt offering, for example. And in his bringing the offering, he was expressing his desire to learn more about what Yahweh expected of him. The priests were then expected to teach them that the life of the flesh, for example, is in the blood and to teach them what God had required of his people because of uh, specific reasons about things. You know, certain things would defile. Uh, certain things would bring fellowship and peace. The priests would give this instruction. Now for them to do that, they had to, they had to remain steady in the word and the law and the Torah, uh, the law of God, the word of God. And they had to be totally committed to what they were doing. So there's a higher standard for them. And if you study out the priesthood, you will find they received when the, I mean, you know, there are all these different kinds of tithes that the people were to give, all these kinds of offerings. And in the temple, there was a storehouse, for example. And the priesthood was, was well cared for. Was, was well, well taken care of. So, so God did not forsake uh, the priesthood, but placed upon them this high privilege of spiritual leadership, which is for those who are in positions of leadership, spiritual leadership, very important to learn. And they're as applicable, although in a different 
Testament in a different day, but the, the spirit of the meaning is still the same when it comes to the requirements and privileges of spiritual leadership. Well, the second half of this is in the next chapter, but we're not going to go there uh, tonight. We'll, God willing, we'll take care of that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have declared that your people are separated to you and that you have done what is necessary to separate us to yourself. Lord, thank you for the instructions that we have as New Testament believers in the New Testament that express in much the same way the privileges that we have, the responsibilities that we have as your peculiar people in these days. Father, we pray that you'll give us the strength and the unction to study your word every day and to hide it in our hearts so that we won't sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.